0: Daniel's a busy chapter There's a lot going on. It seems like it's the whole Bible to me anymore. It's like There's <laughs> so much in there. It's crazy But uh, the goal tonight is to get through the rest of it from the point we're at now, which is verse 24 um, Just so much going on in this in this chapter We started off with Nebuchadnezzar's dream He had this dream as you know, and he was very anxious about the dream troubled about it Wanted to know the interpretation of it and uh he asks, as you remember, he asked his wise men to tell him the dream and the interpretation. They weren't able to do it, and uh, he threatened to kill all his wise men if they couldn't do it. Daniel intervenes, we saw that last week, and goes before King Nebuchadnezzar and asks him for time to uh, be able to come up with the answer. He gets his three friends together, they pray, and then God reveals the dream to him in, in an answer to prayer, and then he gives a prayer of thanksgiving back to God in verses 19 and 23. Uh, from here, we're going to look at Daniel's appearance before Nebuchadnezzar, and then Daniel, Daniel's uh, revealing of the dream to Nebuchadnezzar and its interpretation. So we'll begin in verses 24 to 30, and we'll talk about the fact that Daniel now testifies to Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel's testimony to Nebuchadnezzar, verse 24. Therefore, Daniel went into Arioch. Remember him, the guy that was going to execute Daniel? And, uh, and, and Daniel now has, has got the answer from God about the dream. Daniel goes into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and spoke to him as follows. Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me into the king's presence, and I will declare the interpretation to the king. Then Arioch hurriedly brought Daniel into the king's presence and spoke to him as follows. I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can make the interpretation known to the king. The king said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered before the king and said, As for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed. As for you, O king, while on your bed, your thoughts turn to what would take place in the future, and he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than in any other living man, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. It's interesting that when Ariok gets his news, he goes hurriedly, it says in verse 25, into the king. That word means to be alarmed or to hasten. Ariok is supposed to kill the wise men of Babylon. However, he's got this thing worked out with Daniel. If Daniel comes up with the interpretation, he knows that's, that he's him. He and Ariok knows this. The priority for King Nebuchadnezzar is not to have the wise men killed, but to have the dream interpreted for Nebuchadnezzar. He knows that. And plus, he wants to score points with Nebuchadnezzar. He's always looking for that opportunity. So he's going to make sure, I'm going to try to get this thing done, and not to mention the fact that he gets, takes some credit for himself by saying in verse 25, I, King Nebuchadnezzar, I have found a man among the exiles of Judah who can make the interpretation known to you. Look what I've done. I'm going to score, score some points with the king there. And that's human nature, to take credit for things, even if you don't deserve it. We do that all the time. But he says, I found a man from the exiles of Judah, Understand that Nebuchadnezzar, when he was trying, when he was conquering many uh, portions in the world, would take uh, from every nation. He would deport people that he could use for his kingdom to Babylon. He did that in Judah, as we saw, but he did in other nations like Syria and Phoenicia and Egypt. He imported guys from there as well. And so he specifies, look, this guy is actually from Judah, and he tells the king that. Well, the king's already met Daniel. Besides that, it's interesting in verse 26 that the name Belteshazzar comes up. Remember that Daniel 1. Daniel was given the name Belteshazzar. By the way, Stephanie took me up on my idea of looking up the different uses of the names in, in the book of Daniel and why, you know, some names were, sometimes you're called by the Babylonian name, some sometimes by the Jewish name. And it seems, as you would imagine, that in different contexts, like in the Jewish context, they're using Jewish names, but when they are in, in front of the Gentile leaders, they're being called by the uh, by the Babylonian names, but that's not always the case. Daniel 5 is an example where they're not necessarily, but as a general rule they are. So I thank you Stephanie for that. But the king says here in verse 26 to Daniel, are you able, are you able to make known to me, get this, both the dream and the interpretation? You know how I am about this, I don't want just the dream, I mean just the interpretation, I want the dream as well. Are you able Daniel to do both of these things? Daniel replies to Nebuchadnezzar in verse 27, he says, no man is, is able to do that. So he says, no, neither wise men, no conjurers or magicians or diviners are able. To, nobody can do this. By the way, they throw the word diviner in there, which has not been used at this point. It means a guy who's like a fortune teller, a guy who can tell the future or determine one's fate. He says, I don't care who the guy is, whether he's a fortune teller, whether he's a learned uh, ma- uh, astrologer or magician or astronomer in the Babylonian Scheme of things, it doesn't matter what he is, he's not able to do this job. No one can do this, he says. Um, nobody on your staff can do it, king. The, they, they had uh, admitted as much in chapter 2, verse 10. The Chaldeans had said themselves, nobody can do this. No, There's not a man on earth who can declare to the king what you want us to declare to you. And the, and the gods of Babylon couldn't do it. It says in verse 11 uh, that the, the, the guys here in verse 11 say only the gods can do it, but they hadn't done it either. So there was no evidence that anybody could do it because their gods were impotent, right? And so in verse 28, we find that if men aren't able to do this and gods aren't able to do this, uh, who can do this? Who can reveal the dream? Well, in verse 28, Daniel says it, makes a great statement here. He says, however, there is a God in heaven. There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Think about this. Daniel is now testifying to the greatest king on the planet. At this time, Nebuchadnezzar, well-known in history, by the way, in the history books, as being a great king. Daniel is testifying to this man about God. He's taking advantage of an opportunity and seizing upon it to testify about God to Nebuchadnezzar. And he says, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. A man by the name of Montgomery says this, that there is a God in heaven as against man-made gods and deified men is the supreme theme of the book, even as it is the cardinal principle of the Bible. Now, we talked about this some weeks ago in our overview that we said the overriding theme of the book of Daniel is what? Sovereignty of God, right? God rules in the affairs of men, and he's sovereign over all things. And so we see that in this, in this chapter as well. Uh, Daniel teaches, that, teaches us that he even rules over the gods of Babylon, which, of course, don't even exist. But we looked at this phrase, God of heaven, or we talked about it last week a little bit, but we're going to look at every reference tonight as we, as we see that it's used several times in this chapter. Look at verse 18, chapter 2, verse 18. We see that phrase used, the God of heaven. Uh, Daniel said so that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning the mystery. Verse 19, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. We see it in verse 28, there is a God in heaven. Look at verse 37. You, O king, are king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom. Verse 44. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom, and so on. We don't want to just stop there, though. That's too simplistic. God has called other things in this chapter as well, not just the God of heaven. That's that's not enough. Much more is said about him. Look at verses 20 to 23. In Daniel's prayer, Daniel says in verse 20, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever. Wisdom and power belong to him. He changes the times and epics, removes kings, establishes kings, gives wisdom to wise men, and uh, knowledge to men of understanding reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what's in the darkness. Verse 23 To you, O God of my fathers, He's called, God of my fathers. Look at verse 45. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God, He's called the great God there, has made known to the king. Verse 47. The king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. And so I want you to see that over and over in this chapter we see again and again the supremacy of God. God is supreme over all things and all people. And we, we need to see that emphasis here in chapter 2. In verse 28, it says that he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the, in the latter days. So even though the God's, of Babylon weren't able to do this, and men weren't able to do this. Nevertheless, God was able. It says in verses 28 and 29. It talks about. It has that phrase it uses. It says, uh, "The latter days." Um, this is when the. This is the historical time frame of the dream. Nebuchadnezzar had this dream, and Nebuchadnezzar wanted to know what it meant. When would this dream take place? First of all, it's going to take place in the latter days. Verse 28 says uh, that uh, he's making known to Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. Verse 29 says, uh, "What will take place in the future?" The last phrase in 29 says, "What will take place?" So this dream regards the future, the latter days, and uh, verse 29 says, uh, "After this." But what will take what will take place uh, in the future? Well, the events of the dream, and uh, the time period. This is interesting. The time period uh, of this uh, of this uh, dream refers or stretches to from Nebuchadnezzar until the millennial kingdom on earth. All the way from Nebuchadnezzar until Christ sets up his millennial kingdom, this dream has to do with that that time period. In other words, the sweep of human history from Nebuchadnezzar on. Uh, it's interesting. Gentile history is going to be in view here until the earthly reign of Christ. These are called the times of the Gentiles. You see that phrase in Luke 21-24. The times of the Gentiles started right here, basically with Nebuchadnezzar. Someone argued they started earlier, but most would accept that they started here with Nebuchadnezzar. Um, you see here in verse 29, it's interesting, another designation for God emerges. As for you, O king, while in your bed, you, you, you turn to what would take place in the future, and he who reveals mysteries. God is the one who reveals mysteries, he's called there, another designation for God. And that's already seen in the prayer of thanksgiving that Daniel gives in verse 20 uh, earlier. Well, Daniel doesn't take any credit for this interpretation of the dream at all. takes no credit for it. He doesn't say, like Arioch did. I want to, you know, I want you to know that I have discovered this interpretation on my own. I figured it out. I, you know, I have got the ability from God to do it and I took care of it for you. He doesn't say that at all. He says in verse 30, Daniel says, "But as for me, this misery is not this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me than in any other living man." He says, "I didn't I didn't come up with this interpretation. I'm just a I don't have some natural wisdom that's greater than other people as such." Daniel knows that everything he has is from, and Daniel was a wise man, but everything he has is from God, right? God is the one that gave him everything. And so we see that Babylonian gods weren't able to tell the dream to Nebuchadnezzar or, uh, or uh, the wise men, but Daniel wasn't even able to do it on his own. Daniel, Daniel doesn't even take credit here at all. And there's only one who can re- reveal the information that King Nebuchadnezzar wants, and that's who. That's God, right? And Daniel makes this abundantly clear over and over again. Daniel keeps saying to Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar the king, you're a great king. However, it's God who does these things. God is sovereign. God is the one who knows all things. God can reveal the future. God can reveal mysteries. I can't do anything, neither can anybody else, neither can your gods. It's always God. He's always constantly pointing him back to God over and over again. Understand this, that Daniel was a witness in Babylon. I see this more and more as I study this book. Daniel was a witness in Babylon. Think of, of all the people, and, and you know, they're in, in different waves, Nebuchadnezzar is bringing uh, captives from Judah into Babylon at different times. But at this point, we only know of four. Daniel and his three friends that are a witness for God in Babylon. But he uses the opportunity available to him to witness, doesn't he? He does it, and, and you know, think about that for a minute. Think about that. Daniel used the opportunity available for, for him to witness. And we go week, I know I'm guilty of this all the time, we go week after week in our lives at work, we go to work, we go to school, we go to whatever we do, and we don't think about testifying of God to anybody, do we? We're concerned about our, you know, what we have to do, and we have to do things. I understand that. All of us are busy with this or that project, jobs, all kinds of stuff. and So we're all busy. I get that. But we go week after week without testifying to anybody. And I think the one thing we learn here from Daniel is that we need to testify on behalf of God, the people, and take the opportunities that we see that are presented to us and seize upon them like Daniel did. Daniel had a unique opportunity. He seized upon it. Daniel could have just said, well, okay, king, here's the dream. you know, It's, it's this, and spill out the dream to the king. He didn't do that. He said, I want you to know, king, That there's a God in heaven who can do this. I'm pointing you to God. He's always doing that, pointing people to God. And so this is what Daniel does. And so we looked at Daniel's testimony before Nebuchadnezzar. Now let's look at the dream itself, verses 31 to 35, the dream itself. Some of this may be a little bit technical and that kind of thing, and I'm certainly not the example of all knowledge on eschatology or prophecy. Trust me, I am not. This is a weak point with me, definitely, like it is with a lot of us, right? I've always, I've always been rather puzzled by prophecy in the Bible <laughs> because there's things that are hard to understand. There's things that are hard to put together. And so I want you to understand I'm coming from that viewpoint that I'm like you. I, I have difficulty with this myself. I've tried to, try to study it. I try to understand it. I do my best, but it's difficult at times. But let's look at the dream itself in verses 31 to 35. Daniel says this to the king. You, O king, were looking in your dream, And behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became the chaff from the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that there was not, a trace of them, not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the, the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Well, I want to just give you some observations about this dream before we go into the interpretation. First of all, what did Daniel see? He saw a statue conforming, corresponding to a human form. Big statue, huge statue, it was large, it was enormous, actually. It had a brilliant appearance. Uh, the word there in, uh, is used in verse 31, extraordinary splendor. It means it was very bright, maybe reflecting uh, off the sun or something. And it was, it was brilliant light. And this is what the king is seeing in his dream. Uh, what effect did the statue have on Nebuchadnezzar? Well, it says here in verse 31, its appearance was awesome. That, means, that word means to fear. In other words it was a very frightful thing for Nebuchadnezzar to see this in his dream and he was frightened by the dream as you see in the, at the beginning of the chapter he's anxious he's troubled right he's frightened by what he sees and so you can imagine this dream stuck in his mind God wanted him to have it to see it and that's why he was so anxious about wanting to know what it meant and notice the, the medals, how they start with gold they go to uh, silver then bronze kind of like the I think I thought of the Olympics when I was <laughs> going through this Iron and so on, the metals deteriorate as they go down, right? Uh, the preciousness of the metals begins to t- deteriorate. And it's top-heavy. The gold is heavier than other metals. It's heavier on the top. Um, the stone, notice the stone in verse 35, 34 and 35. Um, first of all, it was, a, it was not of human origin because it says it was cut without hands. Uh, human hands didn't, didn't design that stone, the stone had extraordinary power because it annihilated the statue. And then it filled the whole earth, so it was overwhelming. Can you see why the dream puzzled Nebuchadnezzar and why he was anxious about it? It's very difficult. You're having this dream and you're thinking, Man, what, what is this? And I don't think it's because Nebuchadnezzar ate too much pork the night before <laughs> horse flesh. Maybe he ate some of Daniel's diet for a change and had the bad dream. I don't know. But um, nevertheless, he has this dream. So there's the dream. Well, the interpretation of the dream. What does all this mean? Well, that's found in verses 36 to 45. Verses 36 to 45. Verse 36. And let's read the first, uh, the first section of this through verse uh, 38. Well, let's read the first three verses at any rate. This was the dream. Now we will tell its interpretation before the king. You, O king, or the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory, and wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beast of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. It's interesting, in verse 36, he says, This was the dream, now we will tell its interpretation before the king. Well, who's we? Is Daniel, is his friend standing by him? Uh, uh, Mishael, Hananiah, and Azariah, are they standing next to him? And the four are together, <laughs> now we're going to tell you the dream? They're not there. I, the only thing we can I can I can think of, and I've seen others think of, is he's talking about himself and God. Uh, God revealed the dream to Daniel, and now he says we're going to tell you. <laughs> kind of like the writers of, of the Bible, there was the, the uh, dual authorship in the Bible, right? Uh, men wrote the Bible, like Peter and John and Daniel and so on, but God inspired it to be written, right? He used men to write the Bible, and so he's saying that that we're going to give you this interpretation. Now, the first thing Daniel's going to do is present to the king the idea of four world empires who are going to come on the scene, who aren't on the scene then. And, but then he's going to talk about a final kingdom different from all the others, and that final kingdom is going to put an end to all the kingdoms before it. By the way, those four kingdoms are spoken of in Daniel chapter 7 as well, and we're not going to get into that tonight per se, because that's another, another study for another time, but we'll look at it when we get to it. But we're going to see how, and uh, the dream here that Four empires are represented in, this, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. First of all, the first, uh, the first uh, uh, kingdom represented is the head of gold, which is Babylon. Look at verses 37 and 38 again. He says in verse 37, you, O king, are the king of kings. Now, it's interesting that he says that. Daniel says, you know how Daniel's always wise, and we talked about this, how he presents things to people. By the way, I wrote a letter to a, a person yesterday or the other day, Dr. Barrick, who teaches at Master Seminary where Mike went. And I wanted some information about something. And so I wrote Dr. Barrick. I didn't know if I'd get an answer at all. <laughs> I, I didn't even tell him who I was. just so I'm just nobody here. Um, I would like to know advice about a certain thing in the Old Testament, a certain kind of uh, something. Forget it. <laughs> it doesn't matter. A certain thing. Can you give me advice about this? And I was going to send it. I was going to an email. him, and, and then I thought, wait a minute. I'm going to put down, P.S., <laughs> I really enjoyed your seminar at, she- at the Shepherd's Conference. And I did. Put that down, and I think I thought to myself later on, you know what? That was probably a big plus right there. <laughs> I got a mail back with an email back within five minutes from him with the information I wanted. And he said, Thank you for the encouraging words. With Daniel, and I'm not trying to put myself up with Daniel, I'm just saying that Daniel always did that kind of thing. He was always wise in the way he presented himself to the king, and he says, King, you're the king of kings here. You know, Nebuchadnezzar was the supreme monarch over all his generation. Ezekiel calls Nebuchadnezzar. In Ezekiel 26-7, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, king of kings. He's a great king, supreme king. And then he goes on to say um, in verse 37, You're the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. God of heaven has given you this right to be the king. He's given you the opportunity to be king, the authority to be the king. So once again, have you noticed how Daniel does this? He bypasses all the gods of Babylon. He never He's never found putting them down, per se, but he's always saying God is over all these, over everybody. And he says here, the God of heaven is the one who established you to be the king, Nebuchadnezzar. I want you to understand that. It's the God of heaven that gave you this position over and over again, once again testifying of God, always throwing that in. And that verse is, that truth is repeated in verse 38 and expanded upon. Um, he says, you know, wherever the sons of men dwell, and we saw this in another passage, I think it was in Jeremiah. Or the beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, he's given them into your hand. He's caused you to rule over them all. You're the head of gold. You're the supreme authority in all the world. You're the king, the great king. God has given you as much authority as he possibly could give to any man. You rule over all, even over the animals. I mean, everything's subservient to you. You're you're the great king. You're the head of the head of gold. And you know, in a very real sense, Nebuchadnezzar was the greatest king in the Babylonian Empire. In fact, he really was the Babylonian Empire. As we talked about, the fact that he was, did all, a lot of the architectural work, believe it or not, for that kingdom and designed a lot of things, the hanging gardens that were one of the seven wonders of the ancient world and so on and so forth. He was Babylon in many senses. He reigned for 43 years. Um, and when, he was, when his reign ended, the Babylon only lasted for 23 more years before it was taken over by another nation. And so Nebuchadnezzar, he says, you're the head of the gold, you're the top of the chain, you're the man. But then he goes on to the second kingdom in verse uh, 38. I'm sorry, verse 39. He says, after you there will arise another kingdom inferior to you. Now, he doesn't say very much about this kingdom at all, just that one little phrase. After you, after you king, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you. And that's the breast and arms of silver. It doesn't say that here, but it tells us back in earlier in verse 32 that, would, that was the next one down. And that would be Media Persia. Now, we know it was Media Persia because we look back in history and we know that Babylon was the first one because Daniel makes it clear first great world empire mentioned. The second one after that was Media Persia. Um, he says there's going to be another kingdom inferior to you. Now why was Media Persia inferior to Babylon? It was because they didn't have as many a uh, great uh, you know a big uh, a big as of an empire that Babylon had? No, they had a bigger empire than Babylon had. But it's thought that because Babylon, you know, Nebuchadnezzar was, uh, was a, a brilliant guy. And Nebuchadnezzar had a, a great central authority and organization in his government. Like, was very, was very good at what he did. And Media Persia didn't have that. So maybe in that sense it was inferior. At any rate, it was inferior in some way to Babylon. And so he says to you, he says to Nebuchadnezzar, King, a nation's going to come. They're going to they're be next in line. After you go down, it's going to be and, and we find out in history is Media Persia. Now that's that there was two parts of the division of that empire, Media slash Persia. Doesn't mean they were divided. There were one kingdom, but they were there was that those two parts to it. Um, there's a third kingdom here, mentioned here in verse 39, the second part of verse 39. Then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. Another third kingdom of bronze. Who was that? Does anybody know? Greece, right? Greece was the next one in history that came on the scene and ruled. And uh, that was, uh, does anybody know who the ruler of Greece was? Alexander the, great. Alexander the Great, or we could say the great Alexander the Great, because the guy was military, a brilliant military strategist and what he did. I think he conquered the world by the age of 32. And uh, the guy was uh, brilliant, but he, he conquered Media Persia in 332 B.C., and... Uh, Defeated them, and we have. And we're not going to go into the history lessons here about all these nations, just to, just to give you some dates. But Greece ruled for about 185 years uh, during that time period until 146 BC, and they ruled. Uh, it says here that he's going to rule over over all the earth. And you know, Nebuch- uh, Alexander the Great was swift in his of uh, capacity to go and, and dest- conquer and destroy and get and get territory. And uh, in fact, his empire extended further than all the other three. It was it involved, it went all the way from Egypt and Europe to India. He conquered a lot of territory. And so he was on the scene for a while. But then, in verses 40 to 43, we find there is a fourth kingdom. And that kingdom would be what? The kingdom is Rome. So we have Babylon, first, second, Media Persia, third, Greece, and fourth, Rome. Like I said, some of this is technical, so just stay with me. Verses 40 to 43 Then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron. Inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. And that you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay, partly of iron. It will be a divided kingdom, but it will have in it the toughness of iron, inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. As the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men. They will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. And so you have the fourth kingdom, Rome, and it's described in verse 40 like iron. Uh, and iron has strength, as you know, and, and iron is strong and, and uh, tends to sh- and it shows its power. You see these phrases, uh, these words in verse 40 to describe Rome. They it says they're strong like iron. They crush, they shatter they break in pieces, they crush and break all things in pieces. And that that was the Roman Empire. I mean, they were that way. They were fierce in their in the way they ruled. They ruled with an iron fist. Stephen Miller says this, "Rome ruled the nations <coughs> with an iron hand and like a huge iron club shattered all who resisted its will." I mean, they dominated uh, for I think some 500 years from 146 BC when, you know, Greece was when they knocked off Greece until 300 and, 95 A.D. for 500 years. I mean, that's a long time to rule. And then, the, then they divided into two uh, parts, and the Eastern Empire went all the way till 1453 A.D. Some say that, and I don't have any particular research on this, some say that the kingdoms really never ended in certain ways. So it's something for you to study again, Stephanie. Maybe you can look that information up for me. <laughs> anyway, uh, it says here that, that Rome's going to crush and break all these in pieces. Uh, another quote from Stephen Miller, each previous empire was absorbed by its conqueror. Therefore, when Rome conquered Greece, it c- overcame the empires previously defeated and absorbed by Greece. So that happened. Well, in verses 41 to th- 43, there's different, a couple of different views on, this, on these verses, but I'll tell you what the premillennial view is, and that is this. Some understand the feet and toes of iron and clay to be a further description of ancient Rome. But others say no, it's not that. It's refer- referring to an empire that are go- is going to rise in the last days. that has a connection with ancient Rome, and that's what the view that we would hold. We're, we our church holds the premillennial view of, of uh, eschatology or prophecy. And if you say, well, I don't hold that view, that's fine. I mean, this is our doctrinal statement says this. This is what we as a church hold to. Um, say so if you disagree with that, that's that's you know that's up to you. But um, the key to understanding this right here is in Daniel 2:44 and 45. Let's read those verses right now, and we'll come to them later. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. And so we, we believe that God will set up a kingdom on earth, an earthly kingdom, an earthly reign of Christ and, and, and later on down the road. And that's inaugurated at the second coming of Christ, not, you know, not right now, or whenever Christ comes. And it's not the spiritual reign of Christ in our hearts, by the way. By the way, Pastor Mike, I think, in the next couple of weeks is going to present a, on a Sunday night a, uh, an overview of eschatology or prophecy last things. He's going to go through this and present a kind of map the whole thing out so you can see all this clearer. But this is not the spiritual reign of Christ in the hearts of people. Some people take it that way that Christ is reigning spiritually in your heart and that's the reign of Christ. Well, we take it in a normal, by the way, when you interpret the Bible, interpret it in a normal, plain sense. I'm not using the word literal. You could, but with literal, some people don't understand that. Just interpret the Bible like normal, plain literature. There's metaphors in the Bible and there's similes and there's Lot, a lot of things that you would have in literature, and so just interpret it that way, and not make it, don't spiritualize it and make it, or allegorize it and all that kind of thing. So, anyway, the last part of the statue represents an empire existing just prior to the kingdom of God, and it cannot be ancient Rome. I mean, Daniel seven would verify that as well, and goes into more detail. But it must be some form of of, of restored of the restore, a restoration of the old Roman Empire in some way. And so let's note some observations about the fourth kingdom. Number one, it's going to be a divided kingdom. Once again, I know this is not necessarily, this is more of a lecture type stuff than it is anything right now, but this is what the, the scripture is presenting to us, so you'll understand that. It's going to be a divided kingdom in the fourth, fourth kingdom. Brittle, or, or brittle uh, potter's clay is not mixed with iron, right? Those two don't mix, According and it says that here. And the final phase of the fourth kingdom is going to be divided. There's going to be a number of divisions that make up the, four, the final phase of this kingdom, the Roman Empire, the restored Roman Empire. And it's going to be some kind of a federation rather than just some single entity. That's the first observation. It's going to be a divided kingdom. Secondly, it's going to be, it's going to be a divided kingdom and yet, and yet together. And secondly, it's going, to be, uh, it's going to be powerful as a whole because it says in verse 41, it has the toughness of iron in it. So on the whole, it's going to be a strong empire. However, according to verse 42, certain divisions of it are going to be weak while others are stronger. Verse 42, as the toes of the feet were partly of iron, partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong, part of it will be brittle. So it's not going to be all just super strong. There's going to be a mixture in it. Uh, Fourthly, this restored empire in the future will constitute one kingdom but never become truly one people. It says in verse 43, they will combine with one another in the seed of men. What in the world does that mean? They will combine one another in the seed of men. Well, Kyle and Dale Delitz, who are Old Testament scholars, wrote this. They said, the figure of mixing by seed is derived from the sowing of the fill with mingled seed. In other words, Sandy out there and, and our people in our neighborhood are planting uh, different gardens and seeds and so on. And They might, they might mix up uh, corn, uh, planting corn for a seed and, and uh, seeds for peas and so on and so forth. And this empire is going to be like that. It's going, to ma- it's going to be different. Everybody's going to have, what makes up this empire is going to have separate cultural uh, differences, and there's going to be national identities that are going to main- be maintained, yet all coming together, but they're still going to have these separations and divisions among them. So it talks about that. Well, fifth observation since this image has a human form, the number of toes is assumed to be 10. Does that make, is that common sense or not? Uh, assumed to be 10. And that corresponds. And once again, we'll get to Daniel 7 when we get to Daniel 7, okay? Just accept it for right now. and We'll look at it later. The ten toes correspond to the ten horns of the fourth beast, like this is the fourth kingdom in, in Daniel 2, the fourth beast in Daniel 7. And that talks, that's talked about in Daniel seven twenty-four, which talks about the kings or the kingdoms. So the final form of the empire will be made up of ten kingdoms or nations. It's the same thing that John talks about in Revelation 13.1 and uh, Revelation 17. Mike's going to go over that. Uh, that there's going to be ten nations. And so to summarize what I just said, shortly before the second coming of Christ, there will be a ten-nation coalition of unequal strength arising out of the ruins of the ancient Roman Empire. This is the fourth kingdom in its final form. Daniel 7 says that from this empire will come the Antichrist. And as we get more into the book, we'll see that in Daniel 7. All right, the final kingdom here, the earthly kingdom of God, verses 44 and 45. Let's read. Let's let's look at some observations about that, and just hang in here. First of all, this kingdom will be established in the days of those kings. Look at verse verse 44. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. What's he talking about? What kings? Well, the kings that were are going to be in the, in the in the restored Roman Empire or whatever you want to call it. Those kings in the days of those kings, um, symbolized by the feet and, and the toes of the statues. So in verse 34, when the You see here in verse 34, when the rock struck the feet of the statue, it it means that Christ is establishing his earthly rule in the the earth. So it's going to be established in the days of those kings at that time period when they have the restored uh, Roman Empire. Secondly, this kingdom will be of divine origin, verse 44. It says in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. This is not a kingdom of earthly origin, but rather of divine origin. God's going to set it up. Once again, it uses that phrase, God of heaven. Thirdly, the kingdom will be indestructible, verse 44. It says in verse 44, that kingdom will not be left for another people. In other words, no one will ever conquer or possess this kingdom. And, and we've been seeing this downward progression. Be- Babylon came on the scene. Media per- per- Persia conquered them. They ruled. Greece conquered them. They ruled. Roman Rome came on and conquered them. With the kingdom of God, no one's going to conquer it not gonna be left for anybody God's gonna be in charge of that one fourthly this will be the earthly reign of Christ inaugurated his second coming we've already said that uh, verse 35 the last sentence of verse 35 says that a stone the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth who's the stone Jesus. that's right Jesus is it says over and over again in the scriptures that the stone is Christ in Psalm 118 or Psalm uh, uh, 118 that may be the wrong verse I'm not sure it is offhand. Is it 118? Uh, 1 Peter 2 talks about the stone being Christ. Isaiah 28, 16, quoted in the New Testament again. First Corinthians 10, 4, that rock that followed them was Christ. And it goes on and on and on. I did a, a paper on uh, Peter, who was the rock in Matthew 16. And uh, I saw over and over, over again, Christ is the rock. Christ is the rock. Christ is the stone. And so we believe here that Christ is the stone who's going to put down all rule and authority interesting Mike read that passage today in Isaiah 53 about Jesus being despised and rejected of men the one who was despised and rejected of men at the end is going to be the one who receives all glory from everyone in the sense that everyone every knee is going to bow right every tongue tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father and so the one who was despised is going to be the one who's going to be honored at last well this kingdom is also going to be triumphant in verse 44 the last part of the verse, it's going to crush and put an end to all these kingdoms. It itself will endure forever. It's going to be triumphant. God, you know, we have, you know, a triumphant ending. We, we, you know, we worry about all the things that are happening with us in our lives right now. There's a lot of problems we all face. Like, I realize that. We need to learn to think in terms of, what did you, what did you call it, an eschatological view? Mike used to say, we, his teacher said, we, have, we need to have an eschatological view of things. In other words, look to the end. Look to when Christ is coming. Look to the hope we have in the future with God. So it's triumphant. And then the kingdom of God is certain. Verse 45, verse, uh, the second part of it. The great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true. Its interpretation is trustworthy. Boy, wouldn't you like to have Daniel as uh, to talk to all these liberal scholars out there and liberal critics of the Bible? Let me just tell you some advice, guys. That It's true and an interpretation is trustworthy. And God's word is that way as well. True and trustworthy, right? Well... It's certain. So we see all these things about about the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. Quite a dream, right? Has anybody ever had a dream like that? <laughs> I've never had a dream like that. And this dream wasn't just a dream that just came to him, floating through the ethereal in the night, and he just, whoa, what's going on here? This was a dream from God, right? This is a dream from God, and God wanted. It's, it's interesting that God gave Nebuchadnezzar this dream. It's amazing how many times God works with Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel 1, Daniel 2, Daniel 3, Daniel 4. Nebuchadnezzar is confronted with God of heaven constantly. Always confronted with the God of heaven. This relationship between God and Nebuchadnezzar is amazing to me. And once again, he's confronted here. And so how does Nebuchadnezzar respond in verses 46 to 49 in the chapter? Let's read that. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present to him an offering and a fragrant incense. The king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, since you have been able to reveal this mystery. That's amazing. Verse 48. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon, <laughs> and the chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon while Daniel was at the king's court. Absolutely unbelievable. The king, in response to all this, bows down to Daniel, and that word homage is used only of deities, right? by the way, as if Daniel was some kind of a god. However, Nebuchadnezzar realizes there's someone above Daniel because Daniel's told him about five million times. <laughs> and secondly, it says in verse 47, the king says, Surely your god is the god of gods and the lord of kings. Wow, that was greater than what Daniel said throughout the whole chapter. Look at this line that Nebuchadnezzar gives. He says, your your God is a God of gods and a Lord of lords and a revealer of mysteries. Unbelievable. And so, by the way, Nebuchadnezzar does not become a believer in Yahweh God right here, okay, at this point. Because he still says, even though this is a tremendous statement from a pagan king, he says, your God is a God of gods. And, you know, he still believes in all the Babylonian deities at this point. But nevertheless, Nebuchadnezzar is beginning to wake up uh, waking up out of his sleep and saying, wait, what's going on here? This guy Daniel keeps telling me about this God of heaven. Maybe there's something to this. Now I'm beginning to see something here, and, and you know, I'm realizing this God is different from other gods. And so, you know, a, a, a thing about that is, by the way, when you talk to people, as some of you are, are very good about that, like, you know, Mike, Josh, some of you guys in here, you um, and all of us need to be start being better at it. But, you know, don't be discouraged if people don't get saved right there, then and there. Maybe later on down the road they will. You know, the, the fact of the matter is God's glorified when you witness, right? Or when you testify of God. He's always glorified anyway. And even though Nebuchadnezzar didn't become a believer right here, some think he did in Daniel, in Daniel chapter 4. Um, you know, maybe one day they will become a believer. So don't be discouraged about that. But it's interesting in verse 47, Daniel gets promoted. The king promoted Daniel. Gave him many great things. And the word promoted means made great. He made Daniel great. He made him so great that um, he, it says here he, he uh, gave him many gifts, but he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon. Now, Babylon was divided into provinces, but Daniel was made head of the province, the most important, the key province in Babylon, where the capital city was. He was put over that province. And so he, he was given an important position right here. Furthermore, not only that, but he was appointed as chief counselor to the king in the way of giving advice to the king with authority over all the wise men. All those wise men in Daniel chapter 2 where Daniel's not even present, now he's their boss. He's over all these guys. And Jerome back in, well, this, this must have been the 300s, Jerome said that Daniel was given this position to, end, to, to the end that the omnipotence of God might be, might be made known. He was given that position to the end that the omnipotence or the knowledge of God, the, the, uh, the, the uh, you know unbelievable knowledge of God, infinite knowledge of God might be made known. And that's why we're here, right, to, for that purpose. But Daniel remembers his friends in verse 49. It would be great to have friends like this to work with too, right? Or we have friends like that. What am I saying <laughs> right now? But it's great to have your friends like this to work with in the Babylonian government here. <laughs> now these guys who were captives from Judah are now big guys in the Babylonian government. Who's ruling the world at the time um, and it says in verse 49 Daniel made a request of the king made his friends over the administration and so on so while Daniel was serving in the king's court his three friends were out going out into the province and overseeing the king's business for him and Daniel was probably over those and he was over those guys too so you have four worshipers of Yahweh God in the Babylonian government and they're in they're in big positions now you know you never know what God'll do with you right you never know what God will do with a person who is obedient to him. And D.L. And Moody says, uh, someone someone preached and they said, uh, you never know, what did he say? He said uh, um, something to the effect that the world will never see what God can do with a man, may never see what God will do with a man who is wholly given to him. And D.L. Moody said, I'll be that man. I'll be that man who's wholly given to God. And he was, and God did great things with D.L. Moody he used him. Not for DL Moody's glory, but for God's glory. Used him on both sides of the continent, England and America, to preach great revivals. But and who had a sixth grade education, by the way. And so you never know what God will do with people who are wholly given to God, like these four guys were. God moved them right up to the top. Well, this we'll conclude with this. There's three logical, three theological truths that are emphasized in chapter two. Number one, God is sovereign over kings and affairs of the earth sovereign over all the affairs and kings of the earth. It doesn't matter if it's Nebuchadnezzar or anybody else. Our president or another president in the world or a prime minister or a king or whatever, God's over all, even the bad guys, God's over Kim Jong-il in in North Korea. Uh, He's over all these people, right? He's sovereign. Number two, God knows all things, including the future. God knows all things, and these guys that are going around with this openness of God theology saying that God doesn't know the future, They don't know what they're talking about. God knows all things, and he knows the future. He can reveal it, and the the chapter tells us that. And thirdly, the worldly empires will come and go, but God will be victorious ultimately, right? God's victorious right now, for that matter, but we'll all see it ultimately, even though worldly empires will come and go, and you see this all the time. That nation went down. Another nation came up in its place, and this guy, this ruler was thrown down, and somebody came up in his place, and it's always like that throughout history, as it tells us in Daniel 2 whether it be Babylon or media, Persia, or so on. They're coming and going. God's always there, right? So let's recognize and remember how great the God is that we serve, right? Greater than all, above all, and that's who we serve. We should be thankful for that. All right, well, let's pray, and we can, uh, when, uh, if you have any questions about this, you, you can ask Mike Sprott when he presents his eschatological program for the ages. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for this time together, and we just pray that you might uh, help us to uh, learn from the chapter that you've given us here and uh, help us to uh, be those that would testify of you. First of all, helps to glorify you and realize uh, who you are in our lives, realize you're the great God who's over all things. And we just pray that uh, you bring us safely home to our house tonight and that we'll serve you this week. Praise in Christ's name.